0: Well, as many of you know, I grew up as a suburban kid in Cincinnati, right here in Cincinnati, Ohio. And although my family had a little garden plot in the backyard where we grew things like tomatoes and green peppers and green onions, I have to be really honest with you, I don't know anything about Farming, real farming, you know, a garden plot is not the same thing as farming. But way early in my ministry, I served as a pastor uh, in the communities of Xenia and Cedarville, Ohio. And many people in those two congregations there uh, were farmers um, for their livelihood. And they began to teach me a few things about farming. For example, I never knew that there was a difference between hay and and straw, do you know that? I always thought that they were synonyms, that you could use that word interchangeably uh, for for the same thing. It's not true. It's not true at all. I learned that. I also learned that those big stalks of corn that grow in the giant fields along country roads as you travel in the summertime—that one of those giant stalks of corn typically produces one ear of corn a year. Now, you look at those things, I thought maybe they would be producing dozens of ears throughout the season. In fact, One year, our church used to um, participate in a seed ministry in Jackson, Ohio, in um, eastern Ohio, and uh, my wife Marge had made a poster um, to encourage people to give seeds in the congregation, and she drew a, um, a corn stalk with seven ears of corn on it, and there was one man in our church, Paul was his name, and he actually sold corn seed for a living. He's like, Marge? Did you know that most corn stalks only produce one ear of corn? If you know how to produce seven ears of corn, you've got to let me know because I want to get some of that seed. That is something else that I learned. But mostly I learned to just have a profound respect for farmers whose livelihood depends on so many variables, so many factors that are absolutely outside of their control, and they stay at it year in and year out. Well, Jesus taught people using lots of different farming and agricultural um, um, examples, and today is one of those. In this example today from Scripture, he is teaching how God is interested in increasing yield, in increasing your yield and my yield. And so we turn to John chapter 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. you are the branches if you remain in me and i in you you will bear much fruit apart from me you can do nothing now these are words that jesus spoke in the upper room on the very last night that he spent with his disciples on earth for just in a few hours he would be arrested and he would be tried and then he would be crucified And Jesus wanted this teaching to stay with his disciples long after he was with them anymore in physical form on earth. And so he used an image that his disciples would have absolutely been familiar with. It was an image of a vine bearing fruit. And those who connect themselves to the vine and remain in Christ, he said, will bear much fruit. Together they'll fulfill the command of Christ To love each other. This metaphor of the vine is often used in scripture to refer to God's people. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In Isaiah 5, the prophet sang a song about a vineyard that was planted and and cultivated and cared for. But then yielded a bad harvest. We find the same thing in Psalm 80 and in Jeremiah 2. And so, this idea of the people of Israel being compared to a vine would have been very familiar to Jesus' disciples. God had planted his people and expected them to bear fruit. And so, Jesus picked up on this Old Testament idea and he applied it to his followers. And he says about himself, I am the vine. And not just the vine or any old vine, but the true vine his followers are the branches. Jesus makes it clear that bearing fruit is not an option. In fact, if there is no fruit being born on the vine, it's cut off completely. And if a, fr- if a vine is bearing fruit, it too is pruned so that it will bear even more fruit. Now, if you've ever had a grapevine, grown grapes, had a grape arbor you know how important pruning is. During the winter months, a vine can be pruned back as much as 85 to 90% just to spur on more growth. It doesn't seem to make sense, does it, that you'd cut off a producing vine. But when you do that, when you trim that much back, you're going to have even more fruit the next year. And you know what's true, true of grapes is also true of roses. As I said, I didn't grow up on a farm. We didn't have a grape arbor. But my dad was a really good gardener. A really good gardener. He used to grow all kinds of perennials and annuals and he was really good at growing roses, which sometimes could be kind of hard. He had a whole garden on the side of our house that was nothing but different varieties of roses. And I remember one year when I was probably about eight or nine years old, he took me with him on a Saturday morning in the middle of winter down to Spring Grove Cemetery where there was a Saturday morning little class on how to grow roses. And I remember, not wanting to go, but remembered hearing that uh, this uh, instructor said, cut your roses back like down to the root, like down to the ground which seemed really counterintuitive. We went home, and my dad did just that. It was late winter, probably February or something like that, and he cut those rose bushes down to the ground, down to the root, down to the nub, and it looked like he had killed his rose bush, his rose bed. It looked like it looked terrible. <laughs> it looked like it was dead, but you know what? Then came June and July, and those roses never looked more beautiful than they did that year. Now, we're not fruit. And we're not roses either. So what is Jesus talking about when he talks about pruning us? Well, Jesus is talking about sanctification. He's talking about the second half of the gospel. You see, this sermon series that we're in the midst of comes from research that was done by the Barna Group concerning how people grow in their spiritual life. And what they found was that there are 10 stops along the way towards spiritual maturity. And what the research also shows is that most Christians stop at about stop number five. They profess faith in Christ, they find forgiveness, they get involved in a church and church activities. And that is the first half of the gospel. But you see, it's the second half of the gospel where real growth happens. It's the second half of the gospel where sanctification occurs. Two weeks ago, we learned that sanctification begins with a holy discontent in our lives when we are no longer satisfied with our spiritual journey and where we are on it. That's stop number six. We reach a point in our spiritual development where we want to go deeper. We want to have a more intimate relationship with God, to be closer to God. And and that's often accelerated as we experience a sense of brokenness in our life. When we realize how broken we are without God. That's stop number seven. And we talked about that last week. And so today we're looking at stop number eight, which is total dependence, surrender, This is the turning point of real transformation. And what happens as we experience brokenness is the realization that we are absolutely helpless to change on our own without God. That as long as we think that we're in control of our life or that we even can control our lives, that we're never going to experience the strength and freedom that comes from utter dependence upon God. This is part of the pruning process. It is God at work perfecting us in love. And the way we get there is to stay connected to the vine. Here, verse 5 again. Jesus says, If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Isn't it incredible that the Lord says we'll bear much fruit? Not a little bit of fruit, not just some fruit, but a lot of fruit, Jesus says, will we'll produce if we stay connected to him. He says, remain in me. In the King James Version of the Bible, it says, abide in me, which comes from the Greek word meno. And it means to stay or to continue You see, God does the work of our transformation, but we've got to stay connected. We've got to keep trusting. We've got to keep believing. I think that sometimes goes against our nature, don't you? I mean, don't you think we think that if we hustle enough, if we work hard enough, if we produce hard enough, that we'll see the fruit of our effort? We think that if we try harder, if we do more, that we'll be faithful, But we already know that activity doesn't translate into spiritual growth. That's where we get stopped at number five. The secret, Jesus says, is to stay connected to him. Now, I think sometimes we get into the notion of just thinking to ourselves, wait a minute, there are some things that I can do without Jesus, right? Right? I mean, I can buy a house without Jesus, I can start a career, I can grow in my career, I can get married, I can, uh, I can lead in the church. I mean, sometimes I think, you know what, I could preach, I could teach without Jesus, but you know what, if you do anything without Jesus, it will have absolutely no eternal significance at all. Everything in life you do, if it's going to have significance, you've got to be connected with the Lord Jesus. I think sometimes our ability to do something is taken away from us. I can think of a couple of times in my life where I've absolutely not had any control over anything that was going to happen. And in those moments, we have no option but to trust in God. I think of those four Hebrew young men that we read about this past week and it's part of our Bible reading plan. Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. You remember the story how the nation of Judah had been obliterated by Babylon. They'd come in and they'd destroyed the, the nation. Um, the People had lost their homes, their livelihoods, their family, their friends. They'd been taken off into captivity in Babylon. These young men even lost their names. They were given not new names, Babylonian names, not Hebrew names. They would live and die in a country where they never wanted to be in the first place, and they'd never get to go home again. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and he decides one day to build this enormous image, a golden image that everyone would bow down and worship. That must have been amazing to see a 90-foot statue made out of gold. Well, the project is completed, and King Nebuchadnezzar announces to the country that every single person in the land has to bow down and worship this statue. But then the king found out that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not planning to worship the image. And King Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar became furious. In fact, he was so mad, he called the young men in before him and he asked them, Is it true that you are not going to bow down and worship this image that I've set up? I mean, that would be scary, wouldn't it, to come before the king? Wouldn't you maybe begin to think, oh, is it really so bad if I bow down and worship? I mean, the Lord knows my true heart. If I believe in my heart that I don't think that image is anything, but I just bow down so that I save my neck, would that really be so bad? Maybe the three young men were thinking that. (laughs) That's not what they were thinking at all, my friends. They weren't thinking that at all. Listen to how they respond to the king in Daniel 3, 16 to 18. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. So it looks like all their choices have been taken away from them, doesn't it? It looks like they're not going to have any choice but to bow down and worship this image or they're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. God doesn't seem to be stepping in and, and making a way out for them to not be thrown into the furnace. And so it seemed like they don't have any choice. But you see, they do have a choice. And they chose to trust God. And they surrendered themselves in absolute dependence to whatever the plan of God was for them. They said, your majesty, you may think you have all the power, but we serve a God who can save us from your plans. But even if he doesn't, our minds are made up. We will not serve your gods. Well, you know how the story ends. The people are gathered, and there's this music that starts, and that's the key. That's the signal that everybody is supposed to bow down and worship. And so everybody bows down and worships, and the music is beginning, except suddenly there's this buzz in the crowd, and it grows louder and louder until it's even louder than the music, and people look up from their kneeling, and they say, see three young men who have said, we won't bow the knee. We won't bow our head. There's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing while everyone else is on the ground. And in an act that must have seemed like either monumental courage on their part or suicidal folly, they refuse to bend the knee. Nobody has any doubt about what's going to happen next. The Bible records that Nebuchadnezzar is furious. No one had ever told him no before. And so he orders the three young men to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And not just the fiery furnace, but he says, heat it up seven times hotter than we've ever heated it up before. And so it was so hot that the soldiers that were throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace, those soldiers burned up instantly because they got too close to the furnace. But not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In fact, they look into the furnace and they seem to see Those three men dancing around in the fire like nothing is even hurting them. And suddenly, there's not just three anymore. There's four in the fire. And the fourth looks like the Son of God. You see, God didn't deliver them from being put into the furnace. God is with them in the furnace. These three young men had no way out unless God made the way for them. And so they chose to place their trust in God. They depended on God. They believed that God would perform a miracle, but they were prepared to believe even if he did not. I want that, don't you? How do we get that? How do we abide? How do we learn to trust less in our plans and more in God's plans for us? The church talks about means of grace, those practices, those disciplines that help us stay connected with Jesus Christ. But I want to talk for just a minute first about what fruit looks like. Jesus tells us what it looks like in verse 12. He says, my command is this, love each other. As I have loved you. You see, the fruit of mature life in Christ is love. That's what it looks like. It's taking on a Christ like character. It's looking like Christ when other people look at us. It's the process of becoming like Christ in our thoughts and in our feelings and in our lifestyle. It's becoming united with Christ. My friends, God's will is your spiritual maturity and mine. And God is absolutely committed to making that happen. In fact, Romans 8, 29 says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. You'll grow into Christ's likeness if you want to. And here are some things you need to know to help you do just that. The first is this, that spiritual growth is intentional. Intentional. It requires a commitment on our part, doesn't it? It requires us to stay connected. It takes some work and some time. Yes, God does it in us. God is committed to it happening, but it requires our cooperation. It's not just totally passive. Think about if you want to grow in in your um, physical um, uh, health. You can't do that just by being a couch potato, right? I wish you could. I wish I could just lose weight by sitting on the couch and watching TV. But as you can probably tell, it doesn't work that way, does it? You've got to be dedicated. You've got to be committed. Maybe you join a gym. Maybe you find a personal trainer that will help you make a plan and, and live according to that plan and encourage you when you want to forget about that plan. It gets harder as we get older, so we've got to be committed and stay, uh, stay the course in our physical health. It's the same in our spiritual growth. Spiritual growing, um, developing in our spirituality um, depends on some daily habits. Eugene Peterson, in his translation of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, writes, Exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. Workouts in the gymnasium are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so, making you fit both today and forever. Spiritual maturity is learning some spiritual exercise and sticking with them until they become habits, until they become ingrained in us. And we'll talk more about those in just a moment. It's a process that takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes perseverance. And there aren't any shortcuts. It's a journey that's going to last a whole lifetime and a journey that will probably look a little bit different for each and every one of us. But spiritual maturity is demonstrated more by our behavior than by our beliefs. Spiritual maturity isn't just about information, it's about transformation, being made Christ like from the inside out. It's about character, it's about lifestyle, it's about integrity, it's about walking the walk. Yes, it's great if you know some of those important Bible characters by name, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's great if you can quote scripture from memory. It absolutely is. It's great if you know the beliefs and the doctrines and differences in big spiritual words like eschatology and pneumatology. But you know what? That doesn't mean that you're spiritually mature. It just means that you know stuff. Jesus said. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Lastly, spiritual growth requires relationships. We don't grow in isolation from each other. We grow and develop in a context of relationships and community. That's why we have small groups and life groups and, and new bands, because we need each other. In Hebrews ten twenty four, it says this, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another. Relationships are absolutely essential for spiritual growth. The Bible teaches us that fellowship isn't optional for us. It's mandatory. 1 John teaches us that one of the proofs that we are walking in the light of Christ is that we have fellowship with one another. And why is that? It's because the quality of our relationship with Christ can be seen in the quality of our relationship with other people. If you think that you're maturing spiritually, there's one good test for it it's how you treat other people. Love God, love people. It's that simple. So let's talk for a minute about those means of grace which I mentioned a moment ago that can help you grow. Christians down through the ages have found that these are the the core, the essential, the foundation for spiritual growth. And the first routine is prayer. Spend some time each and every day when you wake up in the morning, the last thing before you put your head on your pillow at night in conversation with with the Lord carve out some time each and every day to sit down and to pray and to listen and to meditate now if that's not possible some days learn to pray throughout your day when you're sitting in traffic when you're cooking dinner when you're waiting on the elevator to arrive Brother Lawrence, who lived a long time ago, was a monk in France, wrote a classic Christian book called Practicing the Presence of God. And in it, he described how he had learned to pray no matter what he was doing, even when he was washing the dishes for the other monks in the community of faith where he lived. Practice the presence of God each and every moment of the day. There's a form of prayer that goes beyond even that. It's called praying without ceasing I used to have a friend who said he never said amen at the end of his prayers. And so he was just constantly in conversation with God, no matter what he was doing, even if he was just in conversation with others, living his daily life. Paul mentions this kind of prayer in 1 Thessalonians when he said to pray without ceasing. You can actually have an unbroken connection with God going all the time. And the ancient Christians knew that learning to be still be still, and be silent was the doorway to that kind of prayer. It involves listening to the Spirit. To be still enables us to see and to hear. Now I know that slowing down long enough so we can listen to God is difficult in our hustle and bustle world, but it is so essential. So spend part of your prayer time just breathing just turning your thoughts to the Holy Spirit. Spend some time just meditating on a short phrase of Scripture, even just a word from Scripture. This past Friday I was reading a passage of Scripture, and then just a few moments later I was reading a passage from a book that I'm working through right now, and in both of those readings the word forgiveness just seemed to jump off the page at me. And so I took that as a sign that the Holy Spirit wanted to talk to me about forgiveness. And so I sat there, and I just asked God to reveal to me what it was he wanted me to do with that. You see, I think the more we practice listening, the more we will hear from God. Another practice is regular Bible reading. In verse 7, Jesus said, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done. Now, in this vocation that I have, I spend a lot of time in the Bible, but a lot of that time is spent researching for a a message on Sunday morning or, or reading for the Disciple Bible Study class that I teach on Wednesday evening. But in addition to that, you know what? I need time that I read the Bible just for me, that I let God just speak to me when I'm not doing it for work, but just doing it for spiritual growth. You need that too. Memorizing passages of Scripture, burying them in your heart so they're there for you when you need them is another great practice to bury God's truth inside of you of course, there are other means of grace, aren't there, that help you stay connected to God and help you abide in Christ. Things like regular worship and confession and fasting, serving others, sharing your faith, and being generous with your giving. And you know that around here we often refer to those as the six habits. Well, I think one of the few positive things that have come out of this pandemic is how much we've had to slow down. Some of the hustle and bustle has been taken out of our life for us, hasn't it? And I hope you've seen that, been able to see that as a blessing. Um, We don't always look at it that way, but it is. And I hope that when this is over, when we've all been vaccinated, when, uh, when this pandemic ends, and it will end, that we'll just refuse to go back to life the way it was before. That we'll recognize how good it is to have a less frantic, less anxiety-filled, less cluttered life. And that by slowing down, we can be more focused, more purposeful. We can enjoy a simpler life with the Lord that we love and with people that we love. Well, moving into the stage of total dependence on God means totally surrendering Your life to God. A life of dependence is a surrendered life. Those words are easier to say than they are to live out, I think. Most of us are raised to believe that we could be and should be independent and that we don't want to really hand our control over to someone else. We want to be in control. But when we do surrender to God, I think what we find is that there is no greater joy in all of the world, than being dependent and surrender to God. Now, I know that I'm dependent on God for everything, but that's not quite the same thing as actually depending on God for everything, is it? And so I'm working on some practices right now that are helping me Learn how to surrender my emotions and my thoughts and my actions to the Lord. And I'm finding that it takes constant awareness. You can't let down for even a moment. Even though you do, you've got to get back up as soon as you realize that you are. And so it means that I have to constantly take my feelings and my thoughts and my actions that I want to take before I take them to the Lord. And it means I have to depend on the Lord to help me grow more and more into the likeness of Christ in each of these areas. Surrendering control of your life and submitting to God's call is absolutely the best thing you can do with your life. It will bring more joy than you can imagine. And when we do that, you're agreeing that from now on, you belong to God. That God's in control of your life and only God Signed, sealed, and delivered, we give up our independence and we accept our new identity and our union with Christ. And my friends, it's nothing to be afraid of because you're surrendering to a friend, aren't you? A friend who loves you and cares for you. Jesus said in verse 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. Jesus is a friend who loves you. He's not an enemy who wants to mess with you or harm you. He will make available to you enormous resources because, let's face it, every resource in the universe begons, begins to, belongs to Jesus Christ. Yes, life is still going to be challenging. The battle for your heart, your mind, and your soul will still continue because there is an adversary out there. But God is responsible for the ultimate results. And so we don't have to worry about the future. Our God has our future too. And it will all turn out according to his plan. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, not only are you a good father, but you are a good farmer. Thank you for your gracious work of pruning in my life. Lord, I give you full permission to prune out of me all of my self-dependent and codependent ways. Lord, lead me into the freedom of life that flows from your Holy Spirit. Lord, I want to bear fruit, much fruit, and I know I cannot do it apart from you, so teach me to stay connected to you in the very depths of my soul, for we pray this in Jesus' name.